Jesus have office hours? I don't know, but he's, he's, uh, it's night, and he, he goes to Jesus, and usually in, in, the, in the Bible, bad things happen at night, right? Judas went out at night and all these things, but, but he comes him to him under the, ooh, that's different, little sound change there. Better? Has this thing been off the whole time? Whatever, we're good. All right. Either way, Jesus didn't have a mic, so, uh, huh, also didn't have lights or guitars, but anyway, so he comes to Jesus at night. And he, notice he doesn't ask him a question, right? You expect if he's coming to, he would say, if I, you know, if I were to walk up to Jesus tonight, I would have all kinds of questions like, what's the deal with the dinosaurs and all kinds of things. But he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. I really wouldn't. But, but he says, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. So what he's saying is, okay, listen, Jesus, like we, uh, the, the Jews, you're doing things that nobody can do unless God was doing them. So we know you have to be from God. And he's sort of, I'm not sure what Nicodemus is doing here, but he doesn't ask a question. He makes a statement, basically saying, you're the real deal. We know you're from God because you do signs, miraculous things that only God can do. And notice Jesus, whenever you talk to Jesus or you see him encountering people in the Bible, there's always, he always says things that don't always answer or talk to what the other person is talking about. So in reply, Jesus says, hmm, well, let me tell you something. I'll tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Uh, and now Nicodemus asks a question. He says, well, how can a man be born when he is old? So Nicodemus comes up and kind of lays out, okay, Jesus, I, I kind of get who you are. And Jesus says, okay, you've seen my signs. I'm going to tell you that you can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. So Nicodemus, thinking born again, meaning re, like rebirthed, says... Okay, now wait a minute, Jesus. How can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time to his mother's womb to be born. I mean, birth, that's a, that's a one-way street. I mean, mama has the baby. Baby comes out. Baby doesn't go back in, right? The baby grows up and becomes a toddler and breaks things. And this is what babies do. They don't, they don't go back in. And that's what Nicodemus is asking. He, doesn't, he says, wait a minute. And I wonder, because this is a brilliant man. And he's sitting here with Jesus. And I don't know what his motive was coming here. But all of a sudden, he's asking Jesus, can I... Can, what? Can you go back into the womb? Because he says, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born, right? The text doesn't say that, but as you kind of get this feeling, I wonder, you know, Jesus always says these things that just takes our whole motivation and throws it into a tailspin. And so he asked that question. Now he's asking questions and Jesus answers him. And Jesus is going to be getting into the root problem of what Nicodemus is talking about. He says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised by, saying you must be, by my saying you must be born again. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, we know you're from God. You've done these miraculous signs. And Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom unless you're born again. And he says, well, how can you be born again? And Jesus says, Listen, not only can you see the kingdom, but he's telling this to a Jewish ruler, a Jewish religious ruler, you can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. And then he goes and he gives us something very basic. He says, listen, flesh gives birth to flesh, the spirit gives birth to spirit, right? Humans make humans uh, like, begets like. That's, that's how it works. And the spirit gives birth to spirit. Don't be surprised that I'm saying you have to be born again. The wind blows and you don't see where it's going or what it, how it, uh, wherever it pleases, but you, 
And so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see the effect of the wind, but you don't see the wind blowing. Well, here in Oklahoma, sometimes you kind of do. But uh, you really don't see, knowing where it comes from, you just, you see the effect of the wind. And so you see what the Spirit does, and the Holy Spirit is here. The Bible says He indwells us, but you don't like see Him, but He's here, and you see the effect of what the Holy Spirit does. So Jesus is getting into the root problem. Nicodemus, listen, the problem is spiritual. That's where we're going to, that's where I'm trying to get you down to. And of course, Nicodemus starts in verse 9. He says, this is one of my favorite questions in the Bible. How can that be? How can this be? You're telling me, right. Okay, I think I get it that you're not, you can't go back into the mother's womb, but I'm supposed to be born again. I'm a Jew. I, I, I've got it. I've got it. I've got the law. What do I need to do? Born a, what is, what are you talking about? How can that be? And so verses 10 through really through 21 is Jesus answering Nicodemus's question, how can it be, or why is it necessary, what does it mean that a person is supposed to be spiritually born again? Because I think Nicodemus gets this. He's a smart guy. He doesn't think that Jesus thinks people go back into the womb and come back out, right? He understands that this is spiritual in nature, but he's not quite getting it. And so in verse 10, Jesus continues and says, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things. I hope that he never talks to me like that, but he does actually quite a bit. But uh, then you don't understand these things. And he says, I tell you the truth. The third time he said that in this passage, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How will, I, how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So what is Jesus doing here? He says, listen, you, you, you have all this knowledge, but you don't understand. You have all this information, but you, you do not get it. There is a huge problem here that Nicodemus does not see. And he says, listen, we, I'm going to tell you the truth. We, we say what we've seen, but still you people, look at the book of the wordage there in verse 11. You people do not accept our testimony. The Jews were not accepting the testimony about who Jesus was because Jesus breaks all the molds for what we think God is like. And they were not accepting the reality of who Jesus was. And he says, I've spoken to you of earthly things, that a man must be born again here on earth. Something basic, right? To the whole walk with Christ. This basic concept that the person has, something has to change. And you don't even understand that. How are you going to understand things that are well out of your understanding? Heavenly things. Since no one's ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. No one left earth and went to heaven and brought back information, is what he's saying, right? Nobody left earth and then went there and, and gathered up and, and wrote a bunch of good notes and then came back and, no. Heaven came to us to help us figure out what was terribly broken. God came into our brokenness. God came into a fallen world to fix it. Because it's, it's another thing. It's a one-way street. Like birth is a one-way street. Listen, you don't go into heaven and then cut. No, I'm coming to you. So, so he's saying, listen, don't, don't believe all the, anything else. Listen to what I'm saying. And then he does something interesting in verse 14. He says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And uh, you remember, I mean, you've got to be wondering. They're sitting here in the dark, and I don't know where they are, uh, but they're sitting there in the dark somewhere. Um, maybe there's a lantern. I don't know. But you've got Jesus, and you've got Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes up and says, You know, I, I know that you're a miraculous teacher. And, and Jesus says, Yeah, you can't see that unless you're born again. And he goes, um, How does an old man, how do, how do you get born again? Jesus says, okay, uh, spirit blows like the wind, and you don't really know what's going on. You have to be born again. 
And so Nicodemus goes, well, I, I, I don't understand. What's, what's going on? And so Jesus goes, you're a great teacher and you don't get it? I came from heaven to tell you these things and you don't get it? And then they're talking about snakes in the desert and lifting them up on poles. And what's he talking about? Well, Nicodemus would have known exactly what he was talking about. And uh, somebody's upset. It happens. If you turn to Numbers chapter 21, um, Numbers is a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, kind of joke because it's got a lot of numbers in it. That's why it's called Numbers. But um, you got talking donkeys and, and you got Moses smacking rocks and water's coming out. And in uh, verse 4 of Numbers 21, it says this. This is during the, uh, the, after the exodus of the nation of Israel. It says, They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Not super just grateful. So, verse 6, the Lord sends venomous snakes among them, and they bit the people, and many Israelites died. So we always kind of associate this with, you know, the, the mean God of the Old Testament. And, and anybody who says the God of the Old Testament is mean and the God of the New Testament is, is nice, they just don't know what they're talking about because it's the same God from Genesis to Revelation. So, uh, so God is coming, and, and they are obviously in trouble. There's venomous snakes, and they're biting them, and people are dying. And so they come up in verse 7, and the people come up to Moses, and they say, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, I will take the snakes away. No. He says, I want you to take a snake and make it out of bronze and uh, stick it up on a pole. Make a snake and put it up on a pole, and anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. When anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Okay, so you can put that away in your cubbyhole of weird stories because, like, you don't go, if you've ever been in medical relief, they don't, like when there's a cholera epidemic, they don't go in and put up a picture of, like, an antibiotic. Uh, it doesn't work that way. You have to take it. And, and we, I mean, you, when you get snake bit and you go, not that I've ever been snake bit, praise the Lord, but if you've ever been snake bit, I assume you go to a hospital and they give you a shot of antivenom or whatever and, and you get better. But they don't give you a picture of a syringe and say, if you, I want you to look at this and be saved. It doesn't make any sense. Because the snake bite was a real physical problem that they had. Bit by snakes, infected with the venom, dying. So the people's solution is what? Take the snakes away. That will solve the problem. God's solution is you don't know how to ask the right question. The problem is not the snake. The problem is the venom that's killing you. So I'm going to give you a solution that will supersede the physical realm and you'll be saved. And so anyone who looked at the snake... Was lived. They were no longer dying from the venom. So Jesus comes back and throws this rather obscure reference out to Nicodemus, and he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Look at verse 15, that everyone, everyone, that word in the Greek means everyone, who believes in him may have, what? Eternal life. What kind of life do the people who looked at the snake have? Life, but then they all died again. And so it's always the problem. So you have like, oh, I'm not going to die from the snake, but then, you know, I got killed by the Edomites or whatever, or I got grew old and died, or it was not a, not a super stellar group of folks, but they're like all of us, actually. But anyway, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And so Jesus is now focusing on Nicodemus. Listen, Nicodemus, he's saying, 
The problem in the desert was this. You had the nation of Israel under the just penalty of their sin. They say it themselves. We sinned against you when we said those things. We complained and that was sin. And so the just penalty for that is death. That's what it is. That's the just penalty for their sin. It was just and good for God to send snakes to bite the Israelites. We don't have to talk about that much because we like God to be like, yay, Jesus is my friend. And yes, God is good. Yes, God is just. He is also holy and perfect. And when we sin against him, he cannot be in the presence of it and he won't allow it to stick around, which is always great when we're talking about another person, not so much about ourselves, right? We always want God to judge someone else's sin, but not really my own. I want him to be gracious and forgive my own. But other people, smite them. That's what we want. You know, bring your old smite stick and smack them down. And God, they are under the just penalty of their sin. That's their condition. They want to take out the cause, which is the snakes. But the snakes are not the cause. The snakes are the judgment. The cause is their sin. And that's what God is going to do in the story. But you have to read all the way from Numbers, all the way into the book of John, to start getting it. And now Jesus is saying, listen, the problem has always been spiritual. You're born spiritually dead. You have to be reborn spiritually to get into the kingdom. So Nicodemus is finally, I think, I know he gets it because he's a follower of Jesus at the end of the book. So somewhere between here and there, he gets it. And that's the context we get into when we hit this famous verse. How is God going to respond to humanity's desperate problem. Humanity is under the just penalty of their own sin. How will God respond to it? For God so loved the world. Is there a better phrase ever? For God so loved the world, the world that I curse, the world that I get sick of, the world that I get tired of, the world that wears me down, the world that runs into your car and breaks your stuff and steals children. This is the world that God loves. God loved the world so much that what did he do? He gave his one and only son. Remember when God asked Abraham to give up Isaac? Did he have to give him up? No, he didn't. He gave him up, I mean, but never, he didn't actually have to kill him. He turned him over to the Lord. But God did not stop there. His love caused him to give, and he gave Jesus. So that what? So that whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Okay. All the snake bit people, right? Let's, let's stay with this story. All the people that are bitten by snakes. What do they have to do to get saved? Look at the, the snake, right? That Moses puts up there. What if they say, here's a conversation you could probably have with somebody nowadays. I do not believe. I have, a, I have a physical ailment. I know there's venom in my system. I understand the chemical composition of the venom in my system. I know what it's doing to my system right now. I can tell that there's necrosis creeping up my leg. It makes no sense for me to look at that bronze snake and be saved. I can't do it. It's just a snake. So if that guy holds that position because of his own understanding of his condition and he holds firm to that proposition, what happens to that guy? 
He dies. Why? Because he got bitten by a poisonous snake. Now the person who says, ah, I got bitten by a poisonous snake, I'm better. What's the difference between the guy that says no and the guy that says yes? He believes. The guy that says yes believes that if I look at the snake, it'll save me. It doesn't say it has to believe and understand everything. It doesn't say it has to understand the depth of, no. All they had to do was look and be saved. So Jesus says that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. So that, that, that verb, uh, pistuo, is in the book of John 99 times. To believe means to, to put your confidence in, to, uh, to, to trust, to think something to be true, to have confidence in. 99 times just in this book. I think John's trying to make a point, right? That belief is important. So you have these people under the just penalty of their sins, right? In Israel. Jesus then goes on to say in verse 15, everyone who believes in him must have, uh, may have eternal life. So God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So who is Jesus including in all of these people who need to be saved? Everyone. You, me, her, him, the guy that I talked to who washed my windows yesterday and I didn't know what to say to him, didn't know where he should go, could pray to him. He, he's dead in his sins. What do you do? What is the condition of the world outside these doors? What is it? It's not good, all right? I want you to imagine if everybody here in Oklahoma City had actually been bitten by a rattlesnake and was laying on the street and their leg was black and swollen and was a hole and they were dying. What would we do? Would we walk by? So Jesus says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. This is legal language, right? He didn't send his son in to act as judge, but to act as savior. He will come as judge. You read the revelation and Jesus is coming back as judge. He's coming back as king and he's coming back as judge. But when he was sent, he was sent to save. And why wasn't he sent to condemn? Well, we just keep reading in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Greatest news ever, right? Romans 8, 1, maybe the greatest chapter in the Bible starts off with, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no judgment upon us. So you get this idea that the whole world has already been judged in their sin. They've stood before the judge and the judge has said, guilty. They haven't yet received the full penalty of their sin, but they've been sentenced. They've already been condemned. But whoever believes is not condemned. Why? Because their condemnation was put on Jesus. That's what the imputation of his righteousness into us means. He took upon our sin and our condemnation upon himself and in return gave us his righteousness. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What is it that brings a person on the person's end from spiritual death to spiritual life? It's just believing. Doesn't say you have to believe and then tithe. Doesn't say you have to believe and then read the right version of the Bible. Doesn't say you have to believe and then, no. It just says, believe in the name 
of God's one and only son. A bunch of people fought a reformation about this, that you just have to believe. A five-year-old can believe. An 80-year-old can believe. Doesn't mean you have to believe and get it all. Just means you have to look at the cross and see your need and trust that he can save you. That's it. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes into walking with the Lord and all these things, but you move from death to life by belief. Jesus says in 19, this is the verdict, right? This has come down. Here's the judgment. Light came into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. We don't need to waste a lot of time in churches condemning the world. It doesn't, it's already condemned, right? Everybody who has not believed on the name of Jesus stands condemned already. Everybody. And I want to kind of look at two things here as we get ready to close. What is the gospel exactly, right? The gospel is that we're all under the just penalty of our sin. We're all snake bit and we're all dying. Unless God in his incredible love intervenes and in this beautiful mystery that I will never probably understand, God draws sinners to himself and then they believe and are made new again. They are born again. The theological word is regeneration, right? You are re-begun again, like Genesis, beginnings. The word born again means born again, right? That's what it means. It's a spiritual birth. And that happens by belief. So my question are two things. When it says the gospel's for everyone, and I think if I was to ask everybody, yes, the gospel's for everyone. Of course, there's no, 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 no. You know, you have conversations like, well, the gospel's only for the elect, but that's, you know, whatever. I mean, you, you, who's the, I mean, whatever. We're not going to get into that. Nobody's figured that out yet. So as soon as you do, send me a postcard and we'll, we'll I'll ask Jesus when we get there uh, after the dinosaur question. But when we look at who is the gospel for, if Jesus says it's for everyone, then it has to be for everyone. That means all of us in here, means everybody outside the walls, means everybody in Oklahoma. And if you get a globe and spin it around and point at a spot, it means whoever lives there, gospel's for them. Whoever lives there, gospel's for them. Whoever lives there, gospel's for them. Remember the, the first lesson from the book of Acts? That we, have, we are a what people? A sent people. Why? Wouldn't it be a lot easier for God just to come down on like a giant Jesus bullhorn and be like, everybody, come to Jesus. It would be way easier, right? It would be way more efficient. But God chose in his sovereign goodness to allow us to be his body and to bring the testimony of the gospel to a world that is dying and a world that is dead. It's a great privilege. And I think that when we look at the world around us, we very often don't really see them as condemned. And I think that has two causes. Um, a, a friend of mine, a mentor, he asked a long time ago, he was sitting on a park bench, and he wanted, he was praying, and he said, Lord, would you, would you please, I want to feel y- your love. I want to love someone like you love them, want to see them as you see them. And he asked God for that, and this, this lady, young lady walked by. And he saw her, 
He saw her for just a moment. He saw her as God sees her, and he loved her. He loved her, and he was overwhelmed with love for her. And at that same moment, he was overwhelmed with sorrow at her lostness. She was lost and separated from his love. And he felt the weight of the sorrow of her lostness. And he could not bear it. And he called out to the Lord and said, no, I can't. Take it away. I I cannot bear it. I cannot bear to love someone that much and then to bear the deep sorrow of their lostness. I cannot bear it. And the Lord just told him, of course you can't. I bear that. You're not made to. That's God's job. I bear the sorrow. But when we say that we are God's children, when a father is sad, don't the children, even though they don't understand the depth of his sadness, are they not affected by his sadness? Are we affected by the father's deep sorrow? If we look at God's heart, like, I encourage you this week to read Luke chapter 15, right? It starts out with Jesus, and he's sitting there with the tax collectors and the sinners. He's like all the riffraff. It says they were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Something about Jesus was magnetic to the worst people in society. I mean, can you imagine you're standing up there and you're surrounded by hookers and drug dealers? No one would want to be your friend, right? And in Jesus' time, not only did very few want to be his friend, but the ruling establishment murdered him because lost people were drawn to Jesus. The Pharisees get mad and they say, well, look at him. He has all these yucky people around him. And Jesus answers them with, with three parables, right? A parable about a, a guy who has 100 sheep and loses one. A parable about a woman who has 10 coins and loses one. A parable about a father who has two sons and loses one. The shepherd finds the sheep. The woman finds the coin. And the father waits for the son to come home. This is God's heart, right? And so my one question is this. In those parables, you have God's very heart for the lost. And you also have, remember what happens at the time everybody gets found, when the sheep gets found, the coin and the sun? What happens? There's a party, like a big one. I mean, blow open the doors, party. Where is our sense of celebration as a church? Uh, On one question I say, where is our sorrow? Right? And I don't want to dwell there because I'll be real honest, it's sad because it's sorrow. But it should be, we should have deep sorrow at the lostness of the world. And we should have jubilant, blow the roof off the church celebration at the reality of our salvation. That we were saved from condemnation. And now we have eternal life in Christ Jesus. And Trevor and I were talking this week that, man, we ought to blow the roof off this place every freaking week if we understand that Jesus died for us and saved us from our sins. But for some reason, we just kind of sit here in the middle and just like be beige, sort of fade into the background. The devil loves it when we fade into the background because we're utterly useless when we do. So here's my question. I want, to, I want to challenge us this week to do two things. I want us to, actually just one thing. I want you to pray. I want you to pray that God would infect your heart with sorrow for the lost, okay? It's okay if you do that. It's okay. Why? Because he's a good father. 
and he will take care of you. Because we don't just bear the sorrow, we bear the gospel. And the gospel is that out of deep sorrow, grace comes in and smashes the sorrow away and brings us great celebration. So I want to pray that God infects us with sorrow for the lost and that he infects us with the deep and abiding, jubilant celebration of eternal life. And that we would walk between these two tensions, grieving for the lost and celebrating the saved. And ask the question, why are we not have this kind of sense of celebration in our church? And I think the hard answer is that most churches grow not by people getting saved and coming to them, right? Church growth is just kind of shuffling the same deck. I'll go from here to this church, I'll come over here, I don't like what's going on over here, so I'm going to come over here, and I don't like it. There's a great, ministry is ministry. We all have needs, and church is church. But the church in Acts, how did it grow? They didn't steal from other people's houses. They would have been like, what are you doing? Go! And I think when they started, the Lord sent a persecution, and then it went out. I think our church has sometimes lost the joy of salvation because we don't actually see that many people being saved. And so I want the Lord to infect us with those two things. The deep sorrow for the lost and an, I mean an uncontainable celebration at the reality of our salvation. We're starting something called our prayer and discipleship team. And what that means is there's a group of people in this church who, out of love for the Lord and out of love for other people, want to make themselves available back there in the seats to just pray for people. Um, if you have a need, go back there and pray. Uh, if you write it on a car and stick it in the mysterious black box, someone takes it out of the mysterious black box, and they scan it, and then they send it to the prayer and discipleship team, and they actually pray over those cards. They pray. They, they, they like get down on their knees and talk to Jesus about your request. It's amazing. And so as we close in worship tonight, we're going to, or this morning, we're going to sing a song. And during that time, if you have something you want to pray about, go back there and pray. Back there in the corner where the lamp is, where those chairs are, someone will be sitting there and just, just go and sit and pray with them. Maybe you want to pray for, to be infected with these two things. Go for it. Maybe you have a deep hurt in your life. Go talk to them. Maybe you have a joy you want to share. Go talk to them. But we need to pray together. And this is an incredible opportunity to do that. So I, I, I encourage you to take advantage of it. I'm going to pray and we're going to respond to the Lord in worship. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. Uh, I pray, and this is the terrifying prayer, Lord, but I pray that you would infect me with sorrow for the lost and with jubilant celebration at our salvation. Would you infect this church with those two things? And between the tension of those two things, that our response would not be anxiety or fear or worry, but worship. That we would respond to you and you alone in worship.